Our reading this evening uh, is taken from 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to read two passages from 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through to 13, and then verses 26 through to the end of the chapter. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father... I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And going down to verse 26, we read, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zedarah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man, Jeroboam, was very able And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, 
the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life, for the sake of David my servant whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom Are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rechoboam his son reigned in his place. Amen. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it and uh, that it teaches us real things about a real God who has really met with mankind. Lord God, we thank you for uh, the message of one kings that we've been looking at, um, of, of Jesus fulfilling what these kings couldn't. And, and Heavenly Father, I just pray that you be with us tonight as we work through what is a, 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 a hard passage maybe, 
Heavenly Father, help us to be convicted where we need to and help us to be um, excited about the gospel. Help us to be excited about grace. Lord, I pray that we would go away from having read this passage more in love with Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in the strong name of your Son. Amen. Well, I think I could probably sum up the feeling in the room after reading 1 Kings 11, especially if you've been going through this series with us. And we're kind of gutted, aren't we? We're really upset. This is quite a profoundly sad part of Scripture. And for those of you who haven't been looking at this series with us, let's go through what we've seen in this King Solomon up until this moment. We've seen the heights of the temple narrative in chapter 8, that extraordinary moment where Solomon builds God's house for God's people. And and then we've got the intervening chapters that we've not looked at, where Solomon becomes this global figure of renown that demands the attention of all the kings and queens in the known world, climaxed by the arrival of the Queen of Sheba, who sees in him unrivaled wisdom and godliness. And she goes away blessed because of his words. And then we come to chapter 11. And his kingdom is being torn out of his hand. All seems lost. We sort of read this and go, no, they had it. Solomon had it. Solomon had the kingdom where God wanted it. Think about what he did. He'd correctly asked for wisdom. He was given it. He didn't ask for wealth. He built God's house in order that God might finally make his presence firmly established in Jerusalem, that his promises might be fulfilled, that people may be able to seek his forgiveness. Solomon established a nation that was vibrant, full of learning, a nation that were, verse 20 of chapter 3 in 1 Kings, as many of the sand by the sea who ate and drank and were happy. He had the covenant kingdom with all its promises. This is as close to the perfect vision of exactly what God wanted to see in his people, a people of faithfulness, a people of wisdom, a people of fullness and happiness, at peace and repenting. And all the covenant blessings were given to God's people and they were safe. They had the temple, the land, each other, their king, their God, they were safe. And this doesn't surprise us. Remember, one king tells us that for God's covenant promises to the people of Israel to be fulfilled, then God's king needs to be obedient to God's word. And Solomon was. We see untold blessing in rude abundance in chapters 3 to 10. But in the space of half a man's lifetime, we end up with a king and a kingdom on its knees. And the question we ask is, what has happened? Well, the truth is that Solomon is now where he is because, point one, he very obviously has a divided heart. We go from chapter 3, verse 3, and Solomon loved the Lord, to chapter 11, verse 1, now Solomon loved many foreign women, and he clung to them in love. Just read with me again, just to remind us, verses 1 to 8 of our chapter. 
Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon clung close to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moad, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed their gods. This is tragic. Solomon's heart is divided. He has the heart of the king of God, but a heart who loves someone else. His heart is not holy to the Lord. And this fully divided heart of Solomon is going to bring about his and his kingdom's ruin. And everything in us wants to sort of climb into this passage and stop him. But look closely at what actually happens to Solomon here. His heart is won by another love, these foreign women, but that's not where it ends. It ends up with him doing what a chapter ago would have been unthinkable. He worships foreign gods. He is guilty of idolatry on a gargantuan scale, yes, but he is also guilty of extreme idolatry. His love for foreign women leads him to his love for foreign gods. And think about what that actually means for Solomon. This is King Solomon we're talking about here. The builder of the great temple to the living God. The presence of whom resided over the Ark of the Covenant. In which stood, like sentinels against him, two tablets of stone. On which were engraved with the hand of God himself the words, You shall have no other gods before me. This same king now, verse 7, builds a high place for Chemosh the god of Moab. He builds a high place for Molech, the god of the Ammonites. He goes after, verse 5, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, of Malcolm, the abomination of the Ammonites. Oh, Solomon! And these gods are no harmless trinkets one wears around the neck, as bad as that would have been. Ashtoreth demanded sexual abuse and prostitution on the steps of her temple. Molech demanded child sacrifice on the steps of his. With the decline of his heart away from the Lord, King Solomon goes into catastrophic moral failure. And look at the consequences of that failure. It's not just him and his wives who are affected. Now the whole nation of Israel is under threat. Those who are meant to be protected under the king, these women of the people of God, these children of the people of God, they are now open up to being used as sacrifices and sex slaves in the high places in the city of the king overlooking the temple of the Lord. I cannot over-exaggerate what is going on here. Solomon is now an apostate. Solomon is allowing the practices of despicable gods to be introduced into a holy nation of the living God. 
Practices that are the direct opposite of the loving, gracious, living God, whose law allowed the people, all men, all women, all children, to be utterly protected and kept safe. And because of his actions, his people are now in peril. His decline is great indeed, and it is devastating, isn't it? And all because he did not love the Lord wholly. All because he loved something else instead. The question is, how on earth did we get here? How did we get from the heights of chapter 8 to the depths of chapter 11? Well, here's the really sad truth. Because as much as Solomon's decline is great, the means of his decline is actually a lot more subtle. In truth, he's not woken up one morning and thought, you know what, stuff it. I'm going to collect me a thousand women. I'm going to build me an enormous harem. And I'm going to give them whatever their hearts desire. You know what, I'm also going to worship their gods as well. Let's do this. That's not what's happened. This isn't a sudden change in heart. This is heartbreakingly a very gradual slide. And we know that because of hints we get all the way through 1 Kings. For example, what is the very first act of Solomon as king that is recorded in Scripture? It's found in chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The very first thing Solomon does is marry a foreign woman. Something that is expressly forbidden under the law, as we read. It's in Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4. You shall not intermarry with foreign women. Why? For they will turn away your sons from following me and you, and you will serve other gods. That is exactly what has happened. Solomon has gone directly against God's word. And now he is serving other gods. There are hints right at the beginning of Solomon's reign. They they run right the way through his reign that he has a fundamental weakness of character. But that weakness of character is not necessarily the problem. What is the problem is that he hasn't done anything about these warning signs. These small sins that have gradually over time chipped away at his heart until there's nothing left. These small sins have blown up over the course of decades and turned him into something that is unrecognizable. And so because these warnings of sin are not picked up on, they are not dealt with um, uh, as and when they occur in his life, we go from verse 1 of chapter 3 to verse 1 of chapter 11. And we see the gradual decline of a great, great man of God. The decline of a great king of God. Until he's not simply messing around with a few women, battling and struggling with sin. He is living in full-blown opposition to the God of heaven. As his heart now clings onto his wives, clings onto their gods instead of clinging onto the Lord. And if we're really honest, why is this passage so hard to read? Because this is a warning to us. We don't want to end up like Solomon. Because we allow our hearts to grow cold gradually over time. And all because we do not pick up on or deal with the small besetting sins that plague us and niggle away at us every day. And so the sub-application point, to some extent tonight, before we properly move on, is are we watching our own hearts? Are we dealing with these small, seemingly insignificant sins every day? 
Are we holding each other accountable? Are we protecting our marriages? Are we having those difficult conversations? Are we looking into the whites of each other's eyes and saying, are you really okay? And that's where Solomon is. Not even heeding his own wisdom. Listen to what he wrote, Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, he says, for from it flows the wellspring of life. Note 1 Kings 11.4. When Solomon was old, his heart was turned away. Guys, we've got to keep going until we're dead. For those of you who are very much older here tonight, and I am not being insensitive or rude, I'm being very serious. You've got to keep going. That is what Paul is saying to Timothy. When we are in our rest homes, we do need to be able to look into a student's eye and say, I have fought a good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. Let's be serious about small sins. Let us be watchful of our conduct. Let us be aware of our weaknesses and let us do something about them. Let us love the Lord our God who promises in his covenant protection, blessing and help. Let us not cling to anything else that, as we will see with Solomon, will rob us of joy in life. And will only bring calamity and danger and eventually extreme loss. Let's heed the warning of Solomon. Let's not lose our first love for the Lord. And that thought brings us back to our text. Because there is actually a more pertinent point in this passage than the warning that we need to heed from Solomon's downfall. And that is the reminder that Solomon is not like any normal man in some respects. In that he's not like any of us. He is God's king over God's people. And with him comes a special responsibility. Because remember, the actions and the fortunes of the king, as we have been seeing in this series, are inextricably linked with the actions and the fortunes of the people. In other words, when God's king doesn't obey God's word, then the people of God do not experience the blessings of God. With Solomon's divided heart, then, comes Solomon's divided kingdom, point two. Read with me verses 9 to 12. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. The reaction from God to Solomon's sin is exactly the reaction we should expect. Indeed, it's the reaction that God warns Solomon of. In the same book of the law, Deuteronomy, where we read that no one should go after foreign women, God says this, Deuteronomy 6, 14 to 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. God's anger is now kindled. The kingdom is now under threat. As God brings his judgment on his people for the actions of their king and for the actions of the people. And so the kingdom is in peril. Not just as we saw earlier because of the practices of the gods that Solomon had allowed to happen to his people. But because they are now under God's perfect judgment. 
And look at what the kingdom under peril looks like. Verse 11 of our chapter. God says, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of your son and I will give it to your servant. The kingdom is going to be divided. And this servant, as Brian brilliantly read to us, is a man called Jeroboam. Let's take a breather for a moment. There's a lot of stuff going on in this passage, stuff that we didn't even have time to read. And all that is to say, verses 14 to 26 talk of how God starts to judge Israel through raising up people against Israel. Can you see that? Verse 14, for example, and the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Verse 23, and God also raised up someone else against him, Razon. In short, the peace that the kingdom enjoyed because of Solomon's faithfulness is now being brought to an end because of his unfaithfulness. And God is raising up these men, notice, to bring about his own judgment. However, I do want to explain Jeroboam in a bit more detail. This will help us a lot later in the book. And we read his story beginning in verse 26. Now, let me just explain what's going on as you scan through the text with me. Jeroboam is a servant of King Solomon. He's a very impressive man. And importantly, he is put in charge of the forced labor of the house of Joseph. So he would very much have been trusted by Solomon. Now, the house of Joseph is a kind of catch-all term for some of the northern tribes in Israel. And that's important for the job that Jeroboam is just about to be given. Now, this impressive servant meets a prophet. And we've only seen a few of these, really, sort of sporadically throughout Samuel and and Kings so far. But these guys are going to become more and more important as this kingdom wears on. And this prophet, Ahijah, stops Jeroboam on the road and then does something really weird, as prophets usually do. He takes off his own cloak, and then he cuts it up in front of Jeroboam into 12 pieces. And he gives 10 pieces to Jeroboam and says, effectively, God is going to divide the kingdom and you are going to get 10 tribes all to yourself as king. All because, verse 33, the people have forsaken me and worshipped all these foreign gods that Solomon had brought in. And so this servant, Jeroboam, will eventually usurp the mighty, until now impenetrable throne of Solomon and will claim the ten northern tribes for himself, which will be known confusingly as Israel, or more simply as the northern kingdom. Only two kings into this eternal line of kings, and we have a divided kingdom. And as we see next week, we will never see the splendor of Israel to the extent that Solomon saw ever again. The golden age of Israel is over. Israel as a united kingdom is done for, all because the king of God's people did not obey God's word. Now, this is all very hard. It's hard emotionally because this is devastating. It's hard for us looking at Solomon and being reminded of what sin can do to a great man, what sin could do to us, what sin could do to our families. But it's hard also in that this kingdom that God has established that had so much hope and promise and potential, is being very quickly dashed. We have a divided king, a divided kingdom, and an angry God. However, and gloriously in Scripture, there are many of those. And in fact, without this last point, we've missed both the focus of this passage and we've completely misapplied it to some extent. Because hidden in the recesses of this passage, there rings a bell that is brighter than the desperation of Solomon and his kingdom. 
And that is represented almost without notice by the two tiny scrags of cloth that are being held tightly in the hand of Ahijah. These are the two tribes Jeroboam will not get. And that is profound. Because we read in verse 36 that the son of Solomon, the true Davidic king, Rehoboam, the one who will come from the line of David, will keep hold of two solitary tribes, or um, in one tribe, Judah it will be called, centered around the city of Jerusalem for the sake of David. In other words, all is not lost. Despite Solomon's incredible sin, despite the judgment that God has to now pour out on his people, despite the divided heart of the king and the divided nature of the new kingdom, God still has a promise to maintain. And this is where we get to the crux of the passage. Because point three, riddled through this text like a thread of gold in a filthy rug, weaves the truth of God's undivided grace. Herein lies the tension in the heart of God. He has to judge the people or he is not just. But he has to protect his promise that there will be a king on Israel's throne from the line of David. He also has to balance this out with his grace and his mercy and his steadfast, long-suffering love. And that is exactly what he does. He doesn't make a hash of it either. His judgment is clear, swift, definitive, but his grace is deep and immediate. Verse 34, nevertheless, great word. In other words, despite all that Solomon has done in my sight, despite everything the people are doing, despite this incredible sin before me, despite this profound disobedience, nevertheless, verse 34, I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, who I chose, who did keep my commandments and my statutes. And I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give you ten tribes, Jeroboam. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, Judah, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. Judgment mixed with incredible mercy. Judgment mixed with faithfulness. Judgment mixed with grace. God will maintain his promise to his people that there will be a line on kings of kings from David who will bring about great blessing despite what they have done and despite what their hearts continue to love. God will have for himself a remnant, a small group of people who he will carry on with, who he will not turf out, who he will not give, on, give up on. This remnant here in this passage are these two tribes represented by these two tiny pieces of cloth. He will continue with his incredible patience to reveal his presence, to maintain his promises, to forgive sin, and to bring blessing. And to, verse 34, always have a lamp before him in Jerusalem. If I were the people of God reading Kings for the first time several decades later, or if I were the people of God listening in at the time to this prophecy of Ahijah's, staggered and disappointed by Solomon... I then read of God keeping hold of this remnant firmly in his fist, and I rejoice. This is absolutely not what Solomon deserves. He does not deserve to have a king from his own line sitting on any throne. 
he has, to use the word quite deliberately, abdicated responsibility as king. But God shows him and the people incredible grace because of God's faithfulness, firstly to his father David, who did keep God's commandments. Even when David sinned so dramatically, his repentance was just as spectacular. And secondly, because of God's faithfulness to his own character. The promise-keeping God in this passage only proves his faithfulness in the way that he treats this nation. And this brings us to the reason we read this passage today. Because I finish, finish reading this passage, and I don't compare and contrast Solomon with me, but fundamentally I compare and contrast Solomon with God. Solomon becomes unfaithful and brings about disaster. God remains faithful and brings about incredible hope. And because of that, I also finish reading this passage, and I look back at Solomon, and I think, for the first time, with real clarity, he is not the king that Israel were waiting for. In other words, there must be something else. There must be someone else who will do what Solomon failed to do, who will complete a life without falling away in sin as Solomon did. There must be a king from the line of David who will take this remnant that God promises here and he will establish a kingdom with. And there is. And it is Jesus. For God's promises to his people to be fulfilled, then God's king has to be obedient to God's word. And that is exactly what Jesus does. How does Jesus fulfill real kingship where Solomon fails? Well, very simply and profoundly, where in the realm of his temptation, Solomon collapses in failure, in the garden of his temptation, Jesus sweats drops of blood and doesn't fail. Whereas at the death, Solomon gives in, staring into the face of death, Jesus does not give in. Whereas Solomon divides his heart between God and Molech, Jesus sets his face like flint towards the cross. Whereas Solomon abdicates his throne and throws away his crown of gold effectively, Jesus climbs up onto the cross and he takes up his crown of thorns. Whereas Solomon couldn't hack the thought of fighting on for the sake of his people, Jesus sits in his grief, in extreme temptation to back out, wondering if there be any other way that God, the, uh, the cup of God's wrath may be removed from him, the cup that is going to be poured out on him in order that we might enjoy all the blessings of heaven. And yet in that darkest of moments, he remains unflinchingly, defiantly faithful to his father's plan and fully obedient to God's word. And because of that, because King Jesus was fully obedient to God's word, we, the people of his new kingdom, will receive all the blessings of God. Jesus, not Solomon, is the true king of David's kingdom. And going right back to where we started this evening, because of this King Jesus, I now don't panic about sin. I come to him. As much as I need to watch myself, as much as I need to heed all the warnings of my temptation, as much as the Bible sobers me up into being very serious about sin, as we read all the way through the Gospels, 
as much as this is our daily life of battle against a dangerous foe, I now know what the God of grace that we see active in chapter 11 really looks like. A God, a king who has died for me so that I may be forgiven and who I can come to, as we looked at last week, at any time. And instead of now panicking about sin, I can rejoice. I come to Jesus at any point and I ask him to really help me, to really work with me, to really forgive me. I do not battle with sin alone. Christ is with me in it. He knows what temptation is like. He withstood the Garden of Gethsemane for me. In my worst profoundly sinful moments, when I think I have sinned once too many times, I come to this God of grace and sorrow and repentance, and this king makes me clean. And I start all over again. Isn't that incredible? And above all, I don't need to panic about sin because in Christ the King, I am safe. Really safe. Because Christ is not going to go from 1 Kings chapter 8 to 1 Kings chapter 11. He's not going to fail. He will always stand before the throne room of God on my behalf, interceding for me and representing me in his righteousness before the Father. He will always be making sure I have access to God. He will always make sure that no matter how much I sin, no matter how much I struggle, no matter how far I fall, he will never give up on me. And so tonight you don't go away from this passage in fear of sin. I come away from this passage rejoicing in Christ. For I am convinced, says Paul, that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor principalities nor powers nor anything else in all of creation will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. All because King Jesus was obedient. His kingdom, of which I am a part of as a follower of Christ, is safe and strong. In the light of Solomon as my king, I am on really rocky territory in my sin. As I can't guarantee he will uphold the requirements of the temple or the law or the king that needs me to to find forgiveness. With Jesus as my king, I am on solid ground because he has guaranteed that he will uphold the requirements of the law and of the temple and of the king. By being utterly sinless by fulfilling the law, by taking on the punishment for me, having broken the law on himself, thus proving that God is just and loving, and thus making me perfect before the Father, dressed, as we will be singing later, in the royal robes of the king that I do not deserve. We see so clearly, don't we, that Solomon was never going to be able to do that for his people. But Jesus shows that he can and that he has. And that by his grace, he dispenses his forgiveness upon our repentance. And he dispenses his eternal blessings on us, despite our sin, despite our failing, despite our falling into temptation. And he has made us righteous in him before God. Sealed with the Holy Spirit, as we read in Ephesians, who guarantees that I will see him face to face. And so, 
we persevere in faith till the day we die. As Philippians says, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, fighting sin every day, being sober-minded as to where sin might actually lead me. Whilst at the same time, I am always being carried on the shoulders of Christ, who has done everything to get us into an eternity with a steadfastly loving, merciful, and gracious God. I cannot be lost because my king cannot fail. And because of that, there is now abundant hope for us in Christ as we receive all the blessings that the kingdom offers because of a king who simply will not fail me. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we are in awe that uh, this is the king that we have. A king who did what Solomon couldn't do. A king who did what none of the kings of Israel could do. Heavenly Father God, thank you that your son Jesus Christ was obedient to your word. That in that Garden of Gethsemane experience where he really um, could have fled, he didn't. And so because of that, because he went to the cross, because he died, because he rose again from the dead, because he ascended to the Father, we now have all the blessings of this new kingdom, all the blessings of God. And Heavenly Father, thank you that it is by your grace alone that we are first made Christians. Thank you that it is by your grace alone that we are able to persevere until the day that we die. And Heavenly Father, I I pray that with that reminder, we would be wanting to really work at our sin, wanting to enjoy holiness so that we can just enjoy life the way that you wanted us to, in freedom and enjoyment of who you are, not in fear or in sorrow of what's been going on. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful message of grace. We pray all these things with thanksgiving in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.